Welcome to Wyoming My 307, land of famous game wardens. I'm Carla Mowell, and honestly, my only experience with game wardens up until now has been to just see their trucks zoom by or read a novel about Joe Pickett. Joe Pickett is a game warden in a very readable and fun series by C.J. Box. He's described as, quote, an everyman hero with a penchant for stepping into trouble who works with an outlaw falconer and his resourceful wife and daughters to protect the land. Now, I hadn't realized that this series was quite so famous until I hosted an Arkansas couple who came all the way over here on vacation to experience Joe Pickett's Wyoming. So I jumped at the chance to interview today's guest, Bill Robertson. He was a real-life Wyoming game warden. Now, this was my first interview from my cabin, so you'll hear my squeaky dining room chairs and occasionally hear Bill thumping on the table to emphasize his point. Here's Bill. Hi, Carla. Uh, My name is Bill Robertson. I'm a retired game warden here in uh, Bighorn County. I moved to Graybull in 1995 with my uh, wife and a one-year-old baby. I had always wanted to be close to closer to uh, mountain country because uh, uh, with a game warden job, there's so much variety that uh, is in the Bighorn Basin for wildlife that's not found in many other parts of the states. A lot of people drive through Wyoming and they see vast open areas of sagebrush. And um, those monocultures like sagebrush community can be kind of uh, species limited. Um, there's there's great wildlife in those, but when you come to the Bighorn Basin, uh, because of the precipitation zones and the geographic features here, you can uh, see wildlife based on the different uh, uh, vegetative communities. We have what I call Little Nebraska out by uh, Otto Immelman. I mean, that's farmland. It's wonderful farmland. Well, that has a whole different type of area for wildlife to exist or coexist than does the top of the Bighorns at, at you know, 10,000, 11,000 feet. So you have alpine to, to lowland, uh, you have canyon land, you have river bottoms, you have mon, uh, montane areas, you have uh, shrub communities, um, you have uh, areas of, you know, uh, saltbrush, sagebrush, uh, drier zones. But because of that, wildlife responds in different ways. We have bighorn sheep, we have mountain lions and black bears, uh, thriving elk herd, uh, in, thinking of higher elevations. But when you get down to the lower land, like Shelk, the Bighorn River drainage, you have flourishing whitetail groups, turkeys, so chuckers, you have, um, you know, sandhill cranes, uh, you have geese and ducks. I mean, there's, Bighorn Basin is blessed with a, a whole spectrum of wildlife. And, uh, of course, that's why we're here, because we love our wildlife and wild places. Yeah, I was just up on the mountain the other day, two days ago, and got to see pika which are so much fun to watch and Mm -hmm. i know those are kind of those animals that everybody wants to protect and help and Mm -hmm. everything because they are so special and they are Uh, when i was going to school in laramie as a wildlife student uh, i had a picture of a pika on my uh, little bitty bulletin board in my dorm room because that did represent an ecological niche that uh, no other species really can uh, survive or really live in and and yet here's this little legomorph that lives above 9000 feet in a pile of rocks it makes its hay in the in the spring and 
summer and stores it for the winter and uh and and it's adorable to boot so uh you gotta love a pika it's a survivor (laughs) everything i've read says that every single day is basically a new adventure Mm. when you're a game warden but what are some of the highs and lows of being a game warden in wyoming every day is different and should be different because the demands of the job change seasonally and are basically self-directed because you do not necessarily have a a supervisor you check in to every day. Uh, my my regional supervisor was sometimes hundreds of miles away, and so we had we had idea of work schedules, but they were kind of loosely fit expectations. And then we had goals and uh, uh, priorities that we had to accomplish during certain seasonal periods. Because the game warden is a very visible public servant uh, to a community. Uh, the days can be uh, start fairly early. One of the biggest slap in the faces for me when I started out in in, in Lusk was that uh, my phone would ring like at six six thirty in the morning, and I was I'd be jumping out of bed, stumbling. You know, the old phone used to be in the office. There was no <laughs> cell phone back then, and you'd you'd uh, run into the office thinking, "Oh my gosh, what's happening?" Well, it's a hunter from Wisconsin who's calling in two hours ahead of time. They're thinking it's 8.30 airtime, and they want to know what, what the deer herd looks like or where the antelope are going to be this year. So you can you can schedule what you like to do, but you end up typically trying to do those activities secondary to the, the demands that come on in the, in the course of a day. You may get a uh, you may get a call from the from the school district to arrange some type of a uh, get together with the students to, for an education program. You may get a call from the biologist wanting assistance with a, uh, a project they're doing, or the fisheries people who need someone another hand to help uh, survey fish in the river, or uh, hunters who are just trying to figure out how to get from point A to point B because you're supposed to know it all, and then throw on that top of that you may get calls from landowners who are dealing with wildlife issues, residents who may have a raccoon in their garage or a black bear in their honey. Uh, and then you do occasionally get the enforcement call, typically during the fall period of the time, but you may have people reporting sick animals or a, a dead animal uh, that is unexpected, a hummingbird underneath a feeder, I don't know. And there are some great, exciting things about the job too. You get to be outside most of the time. You are your own boss most of the time. You have a access to great country and great wildlife based on your own initiative. You don't have a eight to five schedule. And so there's a lot of rewarding things, but then, you know, that cuts into family time. And one of my boys' is, was birthday is in October. Well, that was a silly time to have a kid because <laughs> you don't ever get to go, you know, the birthday party. So Right, because that's tough. hunting season. That's mm-hmm. the busy time. Well, it starts in August and goes till the end of the year, yeah. Mm-hmm. You mentioned hunters calling and asking the game warden for hints and tips and where to find game. Is that part of your job? Oh, yeah, yeah. The game warden position is loosely defined as... Uh, one-third of your time is spent dealing with enforcement. And that varies upon what part of the state you're in. You know, there's not a lot of enforcement needs in the Bighorn Basin for most of the year. But during that certain times of the year, well, that demands quite a bit of your time and will take a lot of your attention. 
The other third of your time is spent with the biologist, uh, working with them, monitoring and surveying your, your herds and wildlife populations and can, trying to consider where they're at biologically. Are they on the upswing or on the downswing? Um, uh, what type of impacts are they having? You know, what does it bid for the next several years? And then the result of those discussions and surveys are the setting of seasons in management practices. So that's your other, your second third. The, the third third of your job is dealing with the public. And then that goes from anywhere from answering the, the phone call of the guy in uh, Wisconsin who wants to know where the deer are to uh, the landowner who's got deer in his corn, the uh, school that needs wants you to do a program on wolves and bears. And dealing with the public um, is actually take a lot of your time uh, because those are the calls you're getting. Are you by yourself when you're a game warden or do you have like a little office staff? In the early 40s, the, the Game and Fish Commission, which uh, uh, is, a, is a group of private citizens around the state uh, who are, in, are charged with the governing of the Game and Fish Department, they instituted a, the policy of putting a game warden station in select communities. And so uh, Grable was one of the earlier ones that were selected. And so the game warden station then was that tool to meet the public's needs. But it also then became the primary residence of the game warden, whereby required by policy to stay in our warden station and to have an office in the warden station. So that connection then with the public is where most of those contacts occur happen. I mean, now you have email and text messages and voicemail and a radio contact, but that was back then that was when, where people, you know, need, got needed to talk with the warden. That's where they got knocked on your door. And so your staff then is, uh, typically there would be a biologist who has a larger area of responsibilities. They may not necessarily be in the same community as you. And then your supervisor staff is, you know, in a larger town like it is in Grable, my supervisor, help is over there in the Cody office. So you're kind of working on your own quite a bit, and it's easy as a as a game warden to try to do a lot of things on your own because that's kind of our personality. We're probably overly prideful and trying to be independent. Well, you mentioned law enforcement. So from what I read, the work of a game warden kind of, as you said, it's a third, a third, and a third. Could you talk a little <clears throat> bit more about the law enforcement aspect? What does it include? Wyoming is one of the unique uh, states in the Western United States with the game warden position as as it is defined by Wyoming statute. In 1899, the commission appointed our very first game warden, Albert Nelson. Then over time, criteria was created that they would be peace officers of the state of Wyoming, which meant they needed to have accreditation through the Peace Officers Standards and Training Act, attend a, a, an academy, become proficient in in the use of uh, use of force mechanisms, and also understanding law. Uh, that requirement of becoming a peace officer mandated that we participate like any sheriff department, um, highway patrol. We we became full uh, peace officers. However, the uniqueness of Wyoming, Carla, is that by statute. Wyoming game wardens are limited in the scope of their enforcement abilities. When I say limited, is that game and fish law, most all laws have titles. 
Game and Fish Law is Title 41 for, for Watercraft and Title 23 for Wildlife. The commission and the legislature regulated our law enforcement application to those two titles. So while I'm a full officer of the law, I enforce only Game and Fish Law and Boating Laws. I don't respond to bank alarms. <laughs> I don't pull people people over for speeding because that's outside those aspects. Even though those laws, like some laws, affect our work, like off-road use or fire bans, things like that, those are not necessarily hunting or fishing or boating-related uh, laws. I can look, observe them, I can report on them, but I'm not there to enforce them. I'd have to present that information to a officer who could enforce that. What makes you decide to go where? I mean, it just seems like this is so huge and there's people <laughs> all over the place. Or do you work off of tips or there's a problem in a certain area? There's more places than, than you can get to. Um, I could spend all the time in the world at a reservoir with all the boating going on. Um, sometimes we'll f form a little task force. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll get several game wardens together and we'll all go down to work Alcova or Glendo or Buffalo Bill or Bighorn Lake. And other times you make that decision yourself. Well, do I go work the Bighorn River? Eh, not a lot of boaters and fishers been during that time of year, but maybe I'll have more user activity up at Medicine Lodge Lake. Or um, perhaps I'll surprise somebody and, and, and saddle up and go up to Willet Lake and see if I can catch somebody in a wilderness lake using the resource and uh, make contacts. You know, contacts are good enforcement-wise, but they also benefit the resource because you're learning what kind of resource is there and, and the public demand on that resource. So many times during my contacts, I found, I learned about, you know, the size and species of fish, or people would report an animal that I didn't recognize that would be up there. You get information that helps you later on in, in your understanding of the natural environment you're working in. So did, were you assigned a horse, or do you just use your own horse? Yeah, some, um, uh, you uh, have uh, districts around the state that department have the expectations that you will maintain a horse. And, you know, Cody has, you know, those guys are horse districts, and they've mm -hmm. got their fleet of horses. And uh, they, because it's such remote country, the Grable level, Warland, Tinsleep are, are horse districts as well. It's not quite the demand as some of the backcountry you see over there outside Cody. Um, yeah, Grable was a horse district, and I maintained my two horses, and, and uh, the department helped me when, uh, financially to, when I used the horses for, the, for that work, and, um, and I had a patrol cabin with some pasture up by the Shell Ranger Station that I could use. It's a nice aspect of the job because there's nothing better than, you know, riding up Shell Creek um, uh, in a, on a summer day and, and uh, enjoying the view between two ears. Yeah, um, and, it's uh, wonderful. As long as the weather stays good, when it gets cold or your horse decides to go <laughs> home without you, then it can change pretty quick. But it's a, it's a challenge. It's, a, it's becoming a lost challenge, too, unfortunately, because use of technology is changing so much. There was never the the traffic of off-road vehicles or all-train vehicles when I began in Grable than there is now. And that's a huge concern because uh, we see that encroachment and the abuses. Now, I have to be careful because I own one myself. 
but uh, it's a great tool, but tools used incorrectly can be really hard. Right, and with the our weather here that is so micro, you know, it can be pouring down rain, not really pouring down rain. It can be raining a couple of miles away, and it's nice here, and you don't know until you're there, mm-hmm. you know, that you're going to yeah. be tearing things up. Um, one of my big educations that I got when I came here uh, was the very first spring. And uh, in the springtime, we're expected to do our sage-grouse surveys starting in in, uh, late March, April. Uh, Well, I was gung-ho on that. And uh, so the biologist uh, gave me the Bear Creek area to go out. Well, in the morning, the things are still kind of frozen. But about 9 o'clock, things start thawing. And uh, that mud is tenacious. (laughs) And more than once, I I got myself into a pickle going now. Man, I can't get out of where I'm at, or I tearing up the ground. I'm totally stuck. I need to someone to help me. So, right. thankfully, I was able to educate myself to when I needed to go out and when I didn't shouldn't be out there because I didn't want to tear up the roads. I didn't want to leave ruts in the meadow or whatever. Do you foresee in the future some kind of reduction in allowability of ORVs? Again, that's outside the scope of the Game and Fish Department. You know, you think about it. Even though that's a major impact because wild places are getting divided more and more and more more roads into wild places less refuge for for wildlife to go to Uh, people pioneer new trails in when they had full-size vehicles no one would have thought about going down that ridge it's not an enforceable aspect with wyoming statutes uh, as they are it was always kind of humorous to me is that as ORVs became more usable and accessible, and they went into further deeper into the country, the hunters used utilized them quite a bit. And then they'd come out and say, "Well, where are all the elk?" <laughs> well, no elk is going to be in the right mind within a half mile of a road, and you're creating roads, pushing the elk into deeper and deeper country, and and so it's a great tool. Like I said, I own one. It's a wonderful thing to have. But it can have negative impacts on what you're doing. I I like travel management programs where there are expectations where you can take a vehicle and what kind of a vehicle and where the road ends. And that's important to know where that road ends because, um, you know, when people continue to pioneer up draws and valleys, it doesn't take very long to not only create another road, but also you create uh, problems with uh erosion and runoff and a permanent road and the ATVs are notorious for spreading weed seeds. So you're bringing them from an area down uh, in the desert and you're carrying the, those weed seeds up into the you know montane area, the higher elevations. You got an issue there too. So there's some big liabilities and, and I hope that the land management agencies, which are responsible for overseeing uh, vehicle use, rise to the occasion to make some protections for us. Well, the other day we went for a hike up outside of Cody. It was called Three Bears, I think, Trail. Three or four bears. Anyway, and I noticed that they had, you know, those little brush-looking things Mm -hmm. to clean your feet from mud? Same concept there, Carla. Yeah, they had that Mm -hmm. for you to clean your feet with, like, a sign that said, these are the the weeds we're trying to avoid. So we cleaned our feet and read the sign. Well, and, and it seems silly. 
But when you think about the impact of invasive species have had throughout the West, because cheatgrass, of good Lord, cheatgrass, cheatgrass, tumbleweeds, I mean, you go down the road, white top, uh, all these um, uh, Russian olive, Russian um, uh, salt cedar. The, if we had those protections back in the days when those things were being introduced, maybe we wouldn't be in the state we are in now. They're also doing that with aquatic invasive species. You know, like your zebra mussel, you mentioned that in one of your broadcasts, is that they're actually trying to prevent that from happening. And, and bully to them, I hope they continue with those efforts because hopefully then in 50 years we won't have clogged irrigation systems and, and reduced fish uh, populations because of the infestation of quagga mussels in our, in our uh, streams and rivers. Yeah, I mean, it literally takes each of us, though, to take the personal responsibility mm -hmm. of watching out for the environment. It doesn't take a lot of effort to try to be careful with what you're doing. Washing your ATV off before you go up. If you're in an area of cheatgrass, getting that cleaned up before you head up to a mountain meadow so you're not spreading that seed base up there. They do have direct impact then on wildlife populations because cheatgrass is very detrimental to uh, sage grouse, sagebrush communities, and and that those are detrimental to sage grouse and species dependent upon that uh, on that particular vegetation type. So cheat grass pushes out sagebrush. It will spread and dominate a, an area. Nevada is a great example of that. The cheat grass carries the fire more frequently, and more fire than eliminates the sagebrush from an area. And the um, cheatgrass just comes right back. And it comes right back. And so very little positive to monocultures. Uh, a monoculture of uh, cheatgrass doesn't help anything. It's palatable for only, a, you know, a couple weeks of the year. And after that, it's it's just a pain because who wants those little seeds in your socks? Oh, they're, <laughs> they're so they're, annoying. And it creates, you know, it creates a fire hazard and, 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 and it has no uh, great lasting benefit to wildlife, although there are some species that do use it. Um, and I have to admit that in some areas where you have partridge or chuckers, they're using the cheatgrass as a seed source. But there's a balance of everything. And, and uh, the problem with invaders is that they do invade and they take over. And you, and if you let it keep going, uh, you know, a monoculture of anything is not going to really help our, our wildlife. I've never heard that explained that way about the fire. I thought maybe they shaded the little plants, or I wasn't well, sure Well, they, they do. They, they're doing that. They remove the four aspects. They dry out the soil, but because they dry out the soil, it also increases the fire frequencies because there's more fuel to carry. And the more frequent fires you have, then there's less opportunity for the, 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 the brush or the shrub species to come back, and it then becomes monocultures. And, and while, I mean, we may not have those fire frequencies in some areas, but you you see your drier slopes here on your southern exposures. You know, the cheatgrass has found a home there. And those are important winter areas because you get thermal advantages on your warmer slopes during the winter. Well, there's no feed for them if the native grasses are gone because of the, the, the cheatgrass invasions. There's those, that wildlife has to go find that forage somewhere else. So what misconceptions do people have? Of a Wyoming game warden. Uh, well, uh, I I have read all the Joe Pickett novels. 
I'm always surprised of how many people come and say, oh, have you ever read the Joe Pickett novel? Well, <laughs> uh, Chuck Box is a, a friend of our association, the author. I appreciate Chuck and what he's done to try to promote the warden position. And he has very uh, correctly implemented a lot of our day-to-day activities into uh, into his, his novels, including the effect of the warden on the spouse and the children and the community. But to sell a book, you got to have a little drama. <laughs> um, my day is probably a lot less uh, flamboyant as, as Joe Pickett. Um, I, I have moments, but nothing like him. Um, so I think the biggest uh, misconception is that we're, we're going around busting bad guys all the time and, and having to report to the governor why I wrecked my truck or something like that. Or right. Those are those make great novels, but they're not necessarily uh, an aspect of your job. Well, even people who are actual FBI agents or police don't do that 24-7. I like to use the, the phrase, uh, be innocent as a dove, but shrewd as a snake. And, and because the people, you're a good source of information, but they want to know that you're there. And in the back of your mind, you want to be quietly observing what's happening because some people do try to pull the wool over your eyes. And you don't want to be so ignorant of that, but you don't want to go around with a chip on your shoulder either. Right. There's a lot. It sounds like there's a lot of balancing that has to happen. Balance is tough. Uh, you have to really curb a lot of your emotions, and that's hard sometimes. Yeah, especially if what brought you into the job is a passion for the outdoors. <laughs> exactly right, Carl. Not... You're right. That's what drew, drew me. Uh, I When I was in high school, I didn't know anything about being a game warden. I, I wanted to be outside. Someone finally said, hey, you can work with a game and fish department. You're outside all the time. Like, well, sounds cool to me. Sign me up. <laughs> uh, my folks scratched their head and says, there's no jobs. There's no money. What are you doing? Well, you pursue it because you yeah. love you love the outdoors as so many people do. Right. And it's been a privilege to to have that opportunity for so many years. I can imagine, especially as you're saying on horseback and backcountry. I mean, that's awesome. The the elements of the job are what are really satisfying. And because of the variety of work and the seasonal aspect, uh, you know, you you get to work um with boats in the summer. You uh you work with your your trucks and horses in the fall you uh you you use utilize helicopters and fixed wing planes to do surveys uh, while you're you're looking at wildlife uh, management uh surveys um uh, you know atv foot patrol i mean name it i mean you get to go out and experience a lot of things and and that those really are satisfied and then you get to work with the wildlife just across the street several years ago we had a young lion snacking on uh, Lisa's cats. That was exciting because uh, she called me and said, I think there's something eating my cats. And I walked into her backyard and they're crouching in the grass. Crouching in the grass was a young mountain lion. And it was guarding its its food source, which was one of her domestics, you know. And I'm going, Time to back off <laughs> and uh, call in the help, like we mentioned call earlier. In the and uh, and so I got some uh, help from uh, the people who deal with that all the time, and we were able to put a live trap there. Within hours, that cat was 
in that life trap and we were able to successfully relocate it. There's nothing more satisfying than working with wildlife or bringing in bighorn sheep from Devil's Canyon uh, that are that are caught with net net guns and transported by helicopter and you unload them from the, the underneath a whirling helicopter and you bring them to a station and you take physical measurements and and give them antibiotics and check for diseases and put a tag on them and then in, into a trailer they go for transplant to another part of the state they say they pay you to do that that's what's so amazing sometimes you go Wow, they're paying me to do that. That's and that's a good pretty day cool. At the office. That's a good day at the office. <laughs> For sure. Well, we mentioned CJ Box. Are there any other books that you would recommend about the life of a Wyoming game warden? Uh there uh Wyoming has a, a few um wardens that have uh written and the the the, the most recent is uh, Scott Werblow has a a book and a series that's coming out, but he has a background of uh, of that, um, uh, Dave Bergonia, uh, a warden who uh, spent a lot of time in the Cody area, but also in the Sheridan area, wrote a book called Wild Journey, and uh, that's that was a really eye opener for me earlier on. And I just finished a book uh, about a warden who uh, uh, was in Vernal, Utah, which is kind of out of out of the state, but uh, it's close enough to Wyoming, and and. This was in the 60s, and um, that culture was a little different in the 60s than it is now. And some of the things that I read, I finished that book um, about him, uh, you kind of go, wow, uh, that wouldn't be politically uh, a really good idea to do right now. Um, because things have have changed in, in the way wardens have done their jobs. And... Uh, and rightly so. We we have to really watch, you know, how we use our equipment, how we interact with the public, um, how we behave. One of the down aspects of being at a warden station is you are in a fishbowl, and everybody's looking in at you, and they they wonder why your kids are, why are your kids throwing rocks at the neighbor or whatever, or you know, why your dog is tearing up your yard, and you know, you didn't mow your lawn. Um, why don't you paint that house? I mean, you get a lot of people that have expectations on how you live, even though your job is not, it ends when you take off the red shirt. Sometimes your public expectations continue even outside your, your duty. And that's tough. That's right. tough. But and, and it's kind of like being the principal's kid or the, or the pastor's preacher's kid. kid. Yeah. yeah. You know, you have like a little extra spotlight on you. Yeah. Right. Well, what's something that people driving through Wyoming may not realize? I, I listened to Mary Flitner's response to this. She hit the nail on the head is that when people come to Wyoming and they see 100 miles of sagebrush, they go, what is out there? Wyoming has a, a great opportunity because of the diversity of wildlife People don't realize the value of that wildlife. We talk about renewable energies like wind energy, solar. Wyoming's wildlife has shown to be the most renewable, constant, and productive source of income and attraction to the state of Wyoming than any other aspect. And it's re it renews itself every spring. 
every spring there's new eggs being hatched. There's fawns being born. Um, there's the migration that comes back. Treated and managed well, we will see that for the next 50, 100, 150 years. And we are totally blessed to have that kind of renewable resource. I agree. And the outside perspective is that all of that is crammed up into the top left corner of our state. Yeah, right. But really, it's everywhere. I mean, of course, we love that top left corner. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. It's beautiful. But there's a lot of amazing and beautiful. It is. And, uh, um, you know, people laugh and they say, oh, you were in Green River. I was in Green River. But the Red Desert is one of the most amazing landscape and and vegetative area that we have. It's unique in itself to the state of Wyoming. And most people are going to go, oh, i got to get through it. That's all I want to do. It's definitely my one of my bucket list places that I haven't gotten to. It's just a little too far to go and come back in a day. Mm-hmm. So I just have to figure no, out No, and trip. it's not, you can't really, uh, really accept it in a day because it, it's it's one of those areas that is so remote and it's looked over. But to understand the solace of of space and um, uninterrupted ecosystems is, is pretty cool. One of my first jobs with the department was a temporary job was to then go study the steamboat elk herd, which we were excited because the numbers had risen between 50 and 100. And I was to do some surveys there to determine what are the components of those shrub communities. Sagebrush that it's taller than your your ceiling out there, big big sage, and those elk were using them like a cover source that they do up here in the mountains with the timber. And I was talking with a, a retired supervisor just two days ago from that area, and, you know, their numbers are thousands now down there. That particular resource has flourished because of, of good management, and they've got to be careful not to overgraze some of that, that country, but it's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, I can't wait. So you, you pretty much grew up in Wyoming and have lived here your life. What's the hardest thing about living in Wyoming? And this is a strange way to answer this, but um, it's hard to understand the world when you live in a place where you're blessed day after day after day after day. We are so used to experiencing good wildlife viewing opportunity, good hunting, uh, low population, great vistas, but for me, the hardest thing living here is to be able to then understand what's happening in the in our nation and around the world and 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 the impacts those are having, knowing that 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 wave Carla is slowly coming onto our beach, and it's coming maybe faster in some areas than others and um and you don't want to just put your head in the sand, you want to understand why the trade of ivory is so detrimental to wildlife how does that affect wyoming well there is a there is an effect it it can have an effect and it's coming why is the you know uh, the killing of elephants illegally in africa concerning to, to me issues with oceans and how does that affect wyoming it's it's easy to say i just don't know and i don't care but really we we should be caring um, we need to open our eyes and, and look beyond our borders because that that wave of of impacts are coming. What was the uh, statistic the other day saying in the United States, uh, like a high percentage, most like 80% maybe of people live in urban areas? 
80%. That means we're 20%. But yet those 80% of the people don't understand what we go, what, how we live out here. And, and, uh, so that education is so important. And, um, I, I wonder over my course of a year, have I made impacts in helping meet that education saying, you know, we have something really important here. Uh, let me teach you about it and reason why it is and open the eyes of those who don't understand what we have, because the crush is, is happening. It's going to continue to happen. And I want my kids' kids to experience what I've had. It's hard right. to do. It's, it's hard, hard do. because we have a beautiful little bubble here. We do. I like <laughs> that. That's why we love it. Yeah, but I like the bu- but bubble. But we are, we are part of that bigger picture. Yeah, right. And you can kind of feel, like you said, the wave. I like that image because you can feel changes are happening. But sometimes you don't know what currents are making that happen. Like Mm -hmm. I've noticed a land grab going on lately, like in the last couple of years. And I don't blame people for wanting to live Mm -hmm. here. You know, I mean, we love it. Why wouldn't they? That land grab also changes, changes cultural assumptions that we operate. And that's why I'm, you know, I, now that I'm retired, I'm interested in, in, uh, our uh, economic development group. I think it's important that we try to use education and uh, living by example to to show the world who we are and the blessings we're, we're given and to say, hey, you're welcome to enjoy those as well. And we'd love to have you part of our community. Um, I hope you understand that big landscapes are important for wildlife. And anytime they get cut in the pieces it can be uh disastrous well i guess we're extra lucky that we have so much public land it would be harder to encroach into that in some ways it's harder to encroach however travel management was one of those aspects we talked about earlier uh, that has made it great impact uh, so the encroachment is happening on public land it may not be the development of a subdivision or, right. a, or a, you know, a housing, but, um, you know, roads are quite the big deal. Weeds are another encroachment, um, you know, the loss of uh, habitat just because of, uh, uh, you know, the ways that land is used. The wave moves very slowly, but it's moving. And when you think about just for my short career of 30 years, I've seen the changes. I can can't imagine what if i transported myself back 70 years ago what kind of changes and i love reading books about uh wyoming uh historical i just read a book um shared with me called the lady of a legend and it's about uh, a a lady who came into wyoming in the early late 1800s early 1900s um with sheep one of the you know sheep was one of the big big drawing points because it was open range and the book was all about running sheep down into Shoshone area uh, for years and years. You know, you think about Shoshone, it's just a place to drive through, stop at the fast lane, get a Coke, keep on driving. You know, who wants to live in a place where it's poison Creek and bad water Creek <laughs> and <know>. tough Creek, <laughs> you know, those are terrible. Like, these are warning signs. <laughs> I don't want to, 
I don't want to stop here. But those people, that's, you know, this this family came to Wyoming. Some of our our culture then was the development of uh, these large open range sheep groups there. And, and what they saw, they, she recorded in this book. And you think back, wow, that's there's some things there that aren't there anymore. And what they were blessed with and what we have lost since, okay, that's, we're only talking about a hundred years now. Now what's going to be like in the next hundred years? Right. Um, I think it's important to, to look out for what we have. I'm a firm believer in conservation. Uh, I think there's, there's places for preservation, but conservation is wise use. Uh, preservation is no use. I think we have to understand that wise use benefits a lot more people. I never heard that definition. I like that wise use versus no use, which is probably not realistic, but there has to be pockets of that. Well, there is. I mean, what is Yellowstone? It's no use, but we all love Yellowstone and it's got a place. I hate to see Yellowstone change. Do I want to see four-wheelers driving all through Yellowstone shooting elk? No, I don't. Uh, You know, do I want a, you know, a coal mine or a gold mine next to the lake? No, I don't. There's other places in the West that allow that, and we should wisely use all the the resources we have. Uh, you know, there's a place for logging. There's a place for ranching. There's a place for sheep. There's a place for ORVs. Uh, there's a place for hunting. There's a place for people who want to go out and, you know, collect butterflies or take pictures. Uh, we should be able to share this, what we have. And unfortunately, we, our pie is only so big. Carla, and as we find our pieces getting sliced thinner and thinner and thinner, um, we get a little bit possessive and worry about some of those pieces disappearing. Right. That's where you get the those comments of like, Wyoming's full, go away. <laughs> yeah, right. It's like, that's not going to work, guys. No, it's not going to work. That wave <laughs> continues to move. People. Yeah. So um, what do you love most about Wyoming? I would selfishly say that uh, I love most about Wyoming is that uh, most people only know it as a, one of those square states in the West. Uh, the obscurity of Wyoming is kind of nice. Thank you so much, Bill. Thank you for sharing your time and your experiences with us. You inspired me to learn a little bit more about the history of game wardens in Wyoming and how that ties to what game wardens do today. So we know that by the 1880s, the millions and millions of Great Plains buffalo were almost completely hunted out. And Wyoming antelope and deer and elk were almost hunted to oblivion too. In 1868, a newspaper reported that Mr. S. Petty had employed 13 hunters to kill over 350 antelope. They were sold as decorative heads in eastern markets. That same year, J.J. Hunt reportedly killed 900 elk and antelope. The killing continued. Over a decade later of this, in 1885, a Laramie Boomerang editorial warned, quote, It will be but a short time until the bear, the deer, and the antelope will disappear, as has the buffalo, unless some steps are taken to prevent a wholesale slaughter, which is now the rule. There were the so-called tuskers. They killed elk for their canine teeth. Valued at $100 a pair of teeth, that's equivalent to $3,000 today. 
One band of tuskers reportedly killed almost 2,000 elk in one season. That was a $6 million payoff in today's money. They mostly sold the teeth to members of the Elks Fraternal Organization. Members wore them on their watch chains as a status symbol. Rancher Harvey H. Glidden wrote, quote, Elk teeth are the coin of the realm all over Jackson's Valley and vicinity for the purchase of supplies of all kinds, particularly whiskey. Now, during this time, the Wyoming Territorial Legislature did pass several laws to curb this mass slaughter, but no enforcement mechanism. Until, in 1899, Albert Nelson was appointed as our very first Wyoming game warden and paid a whopping $100 a month, from which he had to pay $3 a day to his deputy game wardens. Finally, in the early 1900s, we begin to see glimmers of the system that we have still today, hunting licenses, bag limits, and other forms of wildlife management. Now, the more I read about the history of Wyoming game wardens, the more I thought of Bill's analogy of the wave, how it's slow, but it's coming. As a society, we do seem to take our sweet time to react to dire changes. In my interview with Bill, he called today's dot on the map Little Nebraska because it's farm country. I'm talking about Otto, Wyoming, and it sits on the original homelands of Crow, Eastern Shoshone, and Cheyenne people. I'd heard of Otto actually my whole childhood because my dad made it out to be a village of aspirational zealots who tried to steal the Bighorn County seat from Basin. How dare they? Having never been to Otto, I set out to discover its charms. And what I found is that they don't seem to have really recovered from that attempted coup. It remains a very, very quiet outpost of a very quiet county. So today I'm taking liberties with the dot on the map because there's not much reason to stop in Otto unless you know someone there. Instead, let me tell you about the town's namesake, Otto Frank von Liechtenstein. Doesn't that sound like a European aristocrat? Well, he was, a German noble no less. He's actually one of several European nobles and wannabes with ties to Wyoming even today. One example is Prince Albert of Monaco. He went on a very famous hunting trip with Buffalo Bill. And more recently, Queen Elizabeth, who vacationed in Bighorn, Wyoming. And that's what brought us Otto Frank von Liechtenstein in 1877, a vacation, or more specifically, a hunting trip. He liked it so much, he returned a year later, dropped the von Liechtenstein, and became good old Otto Frank, owner of the Pitchfork Ranch outside of Matitsi. And he lived through a fascinating period of Wyoming history, he became a cattle baron. Maybe he even helped bankroll the infamous Johnson County War. That was a four-year struggle between cattle barons and small-time operators. Otto Frank also served as sheriff, and in 1893 he got Butch Cassidy arrested as a horse thief. So how does his story end? Well, Otto Frank died in 1903 of a kind of mysterious gunshot wound. Supposedly his shotgun accidentally discharged while he was crawling under a fence. Hmm, everyone knows. You lean your gun on a post while you're going over or under a fence. Well, I have to give it to sleepy little Otto Wyoming. They took the name Otto because the man named Otto wintered his cattle nearby, and forever they tied themselves to a heck of a story. Today's Wyoming wildlife is the mountain goat. I chose it for this episode because it's a once-in-a-lifetime hunting tag. They're absolutely beautiful animals with gorgeous, long white hair in the winter. 
but this is a tough one folks yes they're very very well suited to our high mountain terrain in yellowstone and grand teton but they're non-natives they're thriving at the expense of native bighorn sheep and they even carry pathogens that can cause a devastating pneumonia in the sheep so for this reason the national park service is eradicating them at least from grand teton national park they're allowing a very small group of experienced hunters to just kill as many as possible now as with controversies over wild horses and wolves there are many competing voices and most of their clashing opinions are shouted there's a lot of information to wade through to form an opinion but that's not for this episode i did post some articles to the website if you're interested in learning more so while you still can go see these magnificent creatures in yellowstone or grand teton national park and here are some interesting facts about them first of all mountain goats are not goats they're actually more closely related to antelope and cattle they're the largest mammal in the high elevations of the rocky mountain west in canada if you've never seen one they're about three foot tall they have long creamy white hair in the winter and it contrasts with their black lips and nostrils and horns these horns can get up to twelve inches long in the billy goats within an hour of being born the kids are scrambling along sheer cliffs where they live fully grown they can jump up to twelve feet in one leap and it's this nimbleness that allows them to live on very steep and precarious ledges and it keeps them safe from predators their white fur camouflages them in the winter they're so well protected in the steep terrain that their biggest cause of death is not predators but falling from their precarious perches so that bags another episode of wyoming my 307 i hope you enjoyed hearing about the game warden life in wyoming the historical significance of otto frank and a little bit about mountain goats the books mentioned by bill robertson as well as other related links are all on the website wyomingmy307.blogspot.com if you have questions or suggestions or if you just want a reminder of when episodes are released email me wyomingmy307 at gmail.com and follow me on instagram at wyomingmy307 there i post a daily picture of beautiful wyoming and i promote events from across the state Happy trails to you until we meet again.